Hello and welcome to A Reason for Hope. We're glad that you're joining us. A Reason for Hope is an hour-long live broadcast which is dedicated to your questions on the Bible. That's right. Your questions come in through our multiple live platforms, through social media, etc. And we delve into the Bible to find those answers. We believe the Word of God is exactly what it says it is, God's Word, breathed out and inspired by Him, and it contains all the answers to life, the universe, and everything. And so we're very excited and glad to be here to navigate those questions and answers with you today. So we welcome you to join us on those platforms and send your questions in, get them in early, and we'll try to get to as many questions as we can today. My name is Dave Robson. I will be your host today and following along on those platforms and fielding the questions. Also with us today, look at that beautiful white shot, is Pastor Sean Richards. How are you doing today? Good. I, without a doubt, heard the dumbest Bible question I have ever heard in my long, sad career of dumb Bible questions. Wow. Someone could literally start off this broadcast asking, why is the Bible made of paper? And it would be a step up from what I heard. Oh so my. it's only uphill from here. Wow. Are you going to share what that question was or just leave us Let's in? pray first and then maybe we might feel <laughs> we're gonna, Oh, we're going to, we're going to tackle that today. That's exciting. No, not, not uh, our starting question, of course, oh. but it is up there. It is up there. Okay. Well, there goes a little cliffhanger for you guys. Peter Martin is also with us. How are you doing? Pastor, doing author, counselor, great friend. <laughs> <laughs> amateur bike rider. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, definitely amateur bike rider. You doing good? Yeah. Yeah, it's good to be here with you guys. Well, there are multiple ways that you can join us. Obviously, you've already found one if you're, if you're hearing me or seeing me. If you're listening to us on, on the radio, Reach Radio, you are listening to our last show pre-recorded, um, but you can uh, get in touch with us on our email address, which I'll share with you in a few moments. As I mentioned, Reason of Hope is a live broadcast. We're here Monday through Friday, same time, 5 to 6 p.m. Mountain Standard Time. And of course, through the internet, you can join us all around the world at whatever time that is for you. And you can always catch up on our archive as well. You can go to our website. This is a Maybe the best place to go. We like to direct people to our website because we have the most kind of control over that, calvarychristianfellowship.com. Uh, that's our home church here where Reason for Hope is broadcasting from. If you go to that Watch Live tab right there, it'll take you to our live page. When we're off air, you'll see a countdown to the next live broadcast. Not only Reason for Hope, but our services here at Calvary Christian Fellowship. We have a Wednesday evening service and three Sunday morning services. Um, but when we're live, you will see the live video. You can sign in with a username and be part of the chat on there. The direct link is ccftucson.online.church. Or again, just follow the link from our website, calvarychristianfellowship.com. If you look for Calvary Christian Fellowship of Tucson on Facebook or facebook.com slash ccftucson, you will find us there. And I'm sure you're familiar with Facebook. There's the live video <laughs> chat function. You can like and even share. We'd encourage you to do that to, uh, if you're blessed by this uh, ministry, to share that around to your friends. We'd love to have more people involved and minister to more people. What are you eating over there? I hear you. No? You don't hear anything. <laughs> Somebody has snacks that they're not sharing with the whole group. We have a mobile app uh, that you can download on your... I got uh, a cough drop. You got a cough drop. That's probably maybe what it is. Cough drops and snacks. These, I'm not. These children. <laughs> I, I will, I'll do my best to wrangle these kids. They're... Uh, very wise, but also very naughty. So we'll see what we can do. He says as he puts up the green screen. As I did. <laughs> that was a mistake more than naughtiness. <laughs> uh, we, have a, we have a mobile app, uh, should you be on the iPhone or Android. If you go to your app store and look for Calvary Christian Fellowship of Tucson, you'll see that uh, Calvary Chapel white uh, dove logo there on a red background. That's our app. 
or even on Roku and Apple TV, we have a channel on there, so you can watch us on the big screen if you have those devices, which is very cool. I know my parents have Apple TV, because my older brothers set them up with it. They're very technologically advanced. It's very cool. So they like to see my big face on there. On YouTube, the channel is A Reason for Hope, or youtube.com slash at A Reason for Hope 546, or just search for A Reason for Hope. The logo now, I need to change that graphic, because the logo is now also the Calvary Chapel uh, white dove, not the picture of Sean and Scott. That reminded me I need to update that screenshot. But there we are on YouTube. You'll find us there as well. Once again, uh, like and uh, subscribe. Click the bell so you're notified when we're live and all that stuff. That really helps us out and gets the word out as well. You can follow Pastor Scott on Twitter, our senior pastor here at Calvary Christian Fellowship. He's not with us today, but will be tomorrow. His handle is at ScottR4H. He posts highlights from the show and a kind of a commentary on news things or prophetic things. Um, just kind of a biblical perspective on things going on in the world and humorous things and all that kind of stuff. So follow along if you're on Twitter and you're a Twittery kind of person. And as I promised, our email address is questionsforhope at gmail.com. Questions for Hope spelled out with letters at gmail.com. You can email us there anytime and we do go to those questions as well. So with all that being said, first to say... Yes, we'll get to pray yes. today. Oh, Sean, you're so good. All right, let's pray. Yeah, thank you that we have the chance to be here. Please anoint Peter and I with not only wisdom, but gentleness and grace in communicating your word and relaying your heart. We know that we don't have anything to share if it's first given, so our hands are open and ask that we'd be given enough to share. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Mm. Amen. 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 Well, it's Tuesday, which means usually we kick off the show with some apologetics. I know you guys had something you wanted to talk about today. Yeah, yesterday on the broadcast, we were, uh, well, had the opportunity to uh, converse with an atheist, and it went about as well as you may imagine. But what was interesting about the exchange was the conversation started the way 99% of these conversations usually start, and 102% of the conversations end. The objection was, if God is good, and you're going to hear that in a variety of different ways. Why did God let this happen? How could you call God good if he lets these things happen? If God is good or since God is good, why does he allow these sort of things to take place? He gave examples of nuclear threats, school shootings, and the like. And, of course, examining the assumptions behind it, he got upset and left. So when it comes to dealing with these types of objections, what we want to equip all of you here to do today is to not be intimidated when this kind of objection comes up because you understand and will hopefully become more familiar with challenging assumptions more than the question as it's presented. We went over this briefly in our rhetoric lessons and we'll happily recap it for you. So I'll play the atheist, I'll misspell my name and such so it's authentic, and we'll level the objection as it stands. If God is good, Already, we have a problem. And if I give you room to speak, room to breathe, what would generally be the question to follow before I even get the chance to give an example? Well, so if someone's asking me the question of if God is good or they're struggling with the existence of God uh, because of the problem of evil, as we would generally put it, uh, the, the obvious question I can ask them is, what is your understanding of good? Like, or what is your understanding of what God ought to do or how God ought to behave? What is, um, or to put it even more simply, what is the best thing that God can do for humanity? So um, someone who presents this issue, it might be coming from an emotional place. They might have experienced loss or suffering in their life. We, we all have. And they're trying to wrestle with the existence of God in relation to that. 
But oftentimes someone is more from just a philosophical sense, arguing from, uh, say, Epicurus, who Epicurus was the one who put forth the famous uh, supposed dilemma of if God is good, then uh, if God is all-powerful and he hasn't done anything about pain and suffering, then God must not be good. If God is good, then if he hasn't done anything to stop pain and suffering, then he must not be powerful enough to do so. So that's kind of the dilemma that he puts forth. Does God want to eliminate all evil, what he defined as a lack of pleasure? And of course, if he would want to, why hasn't he? If he's all-powerful, he could have done something about evil, but hasn't. So is he not all-powerful, or is he not all-good? If he's not all-powerful, why call him God? If he's not willing to do anything about evil, why call him good? And you mentioned it's a supposed dilemma because it leaves out some important factors. Yeah, exactly. It's, so, if I if I take Epicurus, uh, if I take his argument seriously, essentially it boils down to his view of human prosperity is the more, most important thing that God can do. So, if human beings are experiencing mm-hmm. pain of any sort, then God has failed at his job, and thus either he's not all good or he's not all powerful. From the Christian perspective, God has different priorities. And so this is why a lot of serious philosophers, even modern-day secular atheistic philosophers, don't use this objection anymore because it's it's the same type of objection that a lot of secular atheists uh, accuse theists of making, the God of the gaps fallacy. So the God of the gaps fallacy is, I can't explain this, so therefore God. This is a atheism of the gaps type of fallacy. I can't explain why God might want to allow for evil and suffering to exist in his world, so therefore there is no God. Uh, the logic isn't really very sound. So it, like you said, Sean, one of the first things that you want to do in a conversation like this is just establish with someone, well, what's your view of good? Um, why is God held to that view? Why couldn't God have a different priority in mind? And uh, is it plausible that an all-powerful, all-good God might have different priorities than you, and he is accomplishing them, even utilizing things as terrible as evil and suffering? So now we're at a crossroads. We could either go the emotional route and start accusing God of things he never did, because you'll find that whenever examples of moral evil, this is the moral problem of evil, not the natural problem of evil, that's another issue, but the actions of people are permitted. School shooters, did God hold those guns and shoot up the kids at Columbine, or were they too, we won't mention their religious affiliation? Would people who call the nuclear threats bear the name Jehovah, or they bear the name not Jehovah? We're attributing to God responsibility for the actions of not God, and then demanding of him total tyranny, total not just sovereignty, but a oppressive state of control over mankind, that if anything is allowed to happen, it's because he's the cause of it, which are two things that the God of the Bible never says about himself. And the way you can go about this, if the emotional route is taken, is one of two ways. You can either give them a personal example, maybe based on the conversation, they give an example and note, like we said, so what about school shootings? What about nuclear bombs? Okay, when did God do those things? Or you can take a step back and ask, not just like you were mentioning, Peter, why are those things wrong? Because you say so or because he said so, where are you getting your definitions? If I come up to you and I say, well, the definition of an atheist is this, and I give some unfair caricature of you, 
then you would be right in correcting me and saying, no, that is not my belief. You shouldn't misrepresent my belief that way. You should allow me to explain my beliefs and challenge me on the merit of whether or not my beliefs line up with reality. And we say, exactly. Our God isn't the sort of tyrant that holds everyone together like puppet strings. Our God isn't the one causing all of evil in the universe, regardless of how many times you take Isaiah 65 out of, or 45, excuse me, out of context. When we're talking about this issue, you have to be aware of the assumptions. They say God is responsible because good means he lets nothing I don't like happen, as opposed to God allowing the good and the evil to take place, and here's the key, holding both accountable for it. Free moral agency, but at the same time, a sovereignty as judge of all the earth. One who comes to conclusions, not who prevents decisions. If we're going to do the Marvel Studios route, God isn't Hydra. He doesn't punish before the crime. But if, on the other hand, we ask the question, what would be a more productive route in this conversation? What are we hoping for in the way that this ends up going? Not the emotional route, but the factual route. They say, well, okay, I get that the God of the Bible presents himself this way, but I have to be honest, like you said, I see these sort of things taking place, and I have to ask why. I have to ask if there is a God, and I have at least enough goodness in me to want to prevent this, wouldn't that be infinitely more so for him? What would be, and this is where, this is the good scenario, what would be the way we'd engage with the conversation going that direction, where they're honest about this being an emotional issue, they allow us to define our terms, or rather God to define his terms, and then we bring them to Scripture. Where would be the best place to start? So actually, we're kind of living in an interesting time where I think this question has a lot of new relevance. So during the coronavirus outbreak that happened a couple of years ago, I don't know if you guys heard about it, um, kind of a big deal. But this balancing act that governments were trying to implement on their people was something that they were thinking about. We have a lot of authority. This virus is spreading. To what level do we have to balance personal liberty and freedom against the predations of a particular virus? And as people were asking these questions, it was kind of interesting. You know, there was actual philosophical debates happening on YouTube and things like that. Uh, a lot of it was not very good, but those debates were happening. And uh, some people from one side would say, okay, well, about 30,000 people die every year from car accidents. The government could stop that right now by outlawing cars. And yeah, it would make it more difficult for you to get to work, but isn't one life worth saving if it infringes on your precious freedom, right? And so that question is something that's very valid. There are many things that those in authority could do. They could exercise their authority to do, but not without infringing upon other things that are also good, right? We consider liberty a good thing. So yes, it would preserve life, possibly, but it also might hamper the prosperity of life and the quality of life. So could God stop all evil from happening? Yes, but it would stop life. Right? If God created a universe that has no life, then there is no evil. Right? There's no moral implications to a universe like that. Uh, and God wouldn't be affected by creating a universe that doesn't contain any life. His desire to propagate it with life was a desire to bless those that he creates. And we could go into Genesis and share uh, places like that. So 
uh, it's kind of like the, the, the omnipotence paradox is something that many people don't fully understand. They think that if, if God is all-powerful, that means he could do whatever he wants. And biblically, that's just not true. So there, are, there are, uh, is a place in the book of Numbers, for instance, where it says that God can't lie. In the book of James, it says that God can't sin, neither can he be tempted by sin. So there are things that God can't do. He not, can't not be himself. That's right. God can't contradict his very nature. So, uh, for instance, if someone says, can God make a square circle? The answer is, well, no, because that would violate his very nature of being logical and cohesive. And the rules, the laws of logic are ones that exist or pre-exist within his being. So for God to violate his own laws would be to violate his own nature, and he can't do that. Uh, same with sin. So could God simultaneously preserve perfect human freedom and liberty while also taking away any capacity for people to sin? And the answer is, well, no, that's like saying, can God make a square circle? You can't do that. God, in order to preserve liberty, he has to give the ability for people to commit evil. And if people have the ability to commit evil, that means that evil will be practiced. So that's an unfortunate truth, but it is one that exists. There's also arguments for the existence of God that, that uh, subside within the problem of evil that a lot of people don't like to look at. I'll, I'll give you two. Uh, the first one C.S. Lewis mentions in his book, Mere Christianity, where as an atheist, and this is something that bothered me as an atheist as well, when you look at reality as an atheist, you have to admit that evil and suffering are the ways in which the universe is propagated forward, right? So in other words, how did the universe get here? Well, through a big bang. Well, how did each individual solar system get here, including our own? Well, a star had to die, right? A star had to die, and then from the death of that star come the materials necessary to form planets. Okay, well, how did life on this planet begin? Well, you know, one inorganic material had to suffer a mutation in which it became organic material, and then through a process of survival of the fittest in which the weak are killed off by the strong in nature, we got to where we are right now. So in other words, evil and suffering are not unordinary from an atheistic model of reality, they're actually the norm. They're actually the exact way in which life gets to the place where it is right now. So here's the ultimate question. If that is the way that reality has always been and always will be, why are we so bothered by it? And Lewis couldn't really answer that as an atheist. He says, you know, if I'm calling the world crooked, that must mean I have some idea of straight. But where does that idea come from? So in other words, if I'm accusing governments of being corrupt, do I have an idea of what an uncorrupt government looks like? Has one ever existed in human history? If I call my parents mean and abusive, can you give me an example of parents that have been perfect, that love their, their children emphatically and never mistreat them? Well, if you're so bothered by it, why can't you admit that there is something in you that understands objective goodness? And where does that understanding of objective goodness come from? It doesn't come from inside the universe because the universe is always bent. It must come from outside the universe, namely the, the realm of God. So that's one way that you could actually use the problem of people, uh, evil and suffering to argue for the existence of God. The other one is actually even more interesting to me. Uh, evil, human predation, and malicious behavior doesn't conform to any naturalistic explanation. So I was listening to a psychologist today uh, named Robert Poolhouse, who he studies narcissism, psychopathology, uh, as well as what he calls Machiavellianism, which I'm not going to define these terms because it's not important what we're talking about. Can't even um, spell it. <laughs> and uh, sadism. 
And as an evolutionary biologist, as someone who believes in evolutionary biology, uh, someone who does not believe in a theistic view of the world and creation, he said the one thing that really bothered him, and he can't explain, he still can't explain it, is the presence of sadistic behavior within mankind because it doesn't have any naturalistic benefit to it. There's no utility to sadism. And he says what's also surprising is how widespread and common sadistic desires are within people. Right, and he talks about as a as a uh, Canadian, he liked going to hockey games, and usually people in hockey games are not very happy unless a fight's breaking out, and then they really get into it. Uh, or NASCAR, people watch it to see cars wreck. You know, like or, uh, you, you know, you watch most sports, and most of them have a violent edge to them. Right? How many people go to the movies to watch people get hurt? Right, in violent ways. Some of the most popular movies that have come out in the last couple of years have been the John Wick movies. They're very brutal. Right? People are paying to watch suffering and pain. And, and he says, there's no utility to that. Mm. There's, no, there's nothing that helps us survive in delighting in the suffering of other members of our species. As a matter of fact, that actually precludes us from thriving in the way that we ought, mm. right? So as, even though he's an atheist, he's really wrestling with this. He can't give an answer as to why this exists inside of human beings. So in other words, just as goodness, moral goodness, is an answer for, is a reason that we believe in God, moral evil is also an, uh, a reason to believe in God because there's no naturalistic excuse or reason for it to be there. So there must be a supernatural reason for it to be there. Mm. Uh, another atheistic guy who, who converted to Christianity, actually, but he was an artist and he ended up visiting some of the Holocaust museums in Europe. And as an artist, he talks a lot about how art expresses inner human experience, and he mentioned that there is no art that represents the Holocaust. People don't make paintings about it. They don't make poetry about it. And some would argue, be like, well, it's too gauche. You know, it's, it's just a little bit too much to make art depicting something as terrible as the Holocaust. Well, people make art depicting all sorts of horrible events in human history. There's art that represents the exodus and slavery. There's art that represents African, uh, African slavery in the Americas. Uh, there's art that represent violence. There are even plays that depict war, right? Why can't there be art that describes the Holocaust? And his answer, which I think was pretty profound, is he said, the Holocaust is so devoid of anything resembling human humanity that there is no human nature to depict in any particular art form. So this thought that pervaded his consciousness afflicted him because he said, well, what am I saying that there's no humanity in this particular action? Humans are the one that did it. So why can't I express human nature in what happened from human to human? And the answer is because there's something that goes beyond human nature that's responsible for that level of malice or evil to occur, right? There's no readily explainable reason for this type of behavior to exist. And like I said, it's very widespread. So you know, you could even utilize this argument against someone who is materialistic mm. of, have you really thought through the implications of evil, real evil? Um, and I, I've heard some explanations, but again, it, they, they don't really answer the problem. And, and I don't think they ever will, because there is something, when you see real human evil, there is no naturalistic explanation for that. I, I think that anyone looking at real, genuine human evil would at the very least be convinced that a devil exists. And if you could believe a supernatural devil exists, then believing that a God exists is not too much of a step forward, and it's a necessary one if you're going to be sane in this fallen world, for sure. 
Um, but uh, anything else you want to wrap up with or talk about? Yeah, we'll just bring it all back and recap what's been discussed. When the question comes up, if God is good, already we have a assumption, or an assumption rather, behind that statement that needs to be corrected if the conversation's going to go anywhere, because unless we have a common dictionary, there's going to be no meaning. If we don't mean the same thing by God, if your God is a totalitarian puppet master that can't let anything happen beyond his subversive will and therefore is the cause of all evil, then neither of us believe in that God. But if we can, and this is the encouragement, and this is where a lot of patience is needed, as well as some supernatural help as well, allow the opportunity for the Spirit to at least suggest, they let us define what our God is like. That requires two things from us. First, to know it ourselves, to be able to show chapter and verse and why those chapters and verses are authoritative compared to others, which we'd be happy to equip you for on the program. But in defining what we then mean by God, these objections fall apart. Because of this objection and its prevalence, it's a lot of people doing a lot with very little information, but a whole lot of emotions. We don't invalidate them. We don't dismiss them. Maybe later we can make fun of the spelling if it isn't a productive conversation, but the goal in any conversation, any meaningful conversation, needs to be focused on and ultimately brought back to what about the revelation of Jesus Christ. If we have anything to take away from what God is like, it was shown in a man who proved it. And I don't see a sadist. I don't see a puppet master. I see a God who is willing to not only fight, but die for his creation. And the one thing that makes all things, things horrible, separation from him and death, he fixed that problem firsthand and offers the same to anyone that ultimately is in need of it, which is all of us, unless we're immortal and perfect. So anyone uh, fits that category line up. But if you're talking to someone, be aware of that rhetoric, be aware of the underlying assumption, and hopefully you'll run into someone who will at least acknowledge the emotional assumption, not divert back to, well, your God is evil. Well, your God is this because I said so. Your God ought to be this because I said so. Mm. And when it ultimately comes back to it, we end up talking about two different gods, and neither one of us feels that we talked about anything apart from invective. So, Yeah, great. I remember a, a, a Q&A I saw with a pastor whose name's, name escapes me right now, but, you know, a great uh, apologist and author. And uh, he was answering Bible questions, and one of the questions were, you know, why did God allow, you know, the destruction of villages in the Old Testament and women and kids? And I was like, man, how is he going to handle this? And his answer was, um, God can do whatever he wants to do. You know, he's God. And he went on to break it down, but it blew me away when I heard this a few years ago. Like, man, what a great answer. God doesn't owe me an explanation. He is yeah. God, you know. And what you kicked it off by saying, that um, that's, the, that's the false pretense that God needs to do these things in order, you know, to make me comfortable and all those things to, to, be, be, to be good, you know. Um, but God can do whatever he wants. He's God. <laughs> and unfortunately, he gives us the same privilege, and we end up acting not like God yes. when we do so. Yes, we do. Well, great. Well, thank you for sharing that. Um, we've got some questions coming in. And a uh, prayer request as well. Yeah. Do you, let's, um, do you want to hit that up first? You yeah, for there, uh, Rich. Yeah. Um, 
Why listener, Rich, uh, as a younger brother in Christ, is depressed and suicidal. He believes God has cursed him and his life is a mistake. And uh, basically his main stumbling block right now is he thinks that God's not keeping his promises to him. So um, he wants prayer for his clouded thinking that he's ultimately going to come back to truth on this matter. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you want to pray, Sean? I'd be happy yeah. to. Dad, we, more than anything else, are most prone to believe the lies we tell ourselves. And speaking from my own heart as well as for those at my side, we all are grateful for the dark times that God held our hand through the times we were complaining and whining, that we had a version of you that wasn't accurate and blamed you for it, and you still loved us anyway. You still loved us through it, and most importantly, you saw us through it. I want to pray for Rich's brother right now that as he's dealing with these emotions and as well being tempted in actions that we can all sympathize with, that he wouldn't lose sight of you, that he wouldn't forget your word, and that at the end of this journey that he would have a greater appreciation for you. Encourage his heart not to doubt your, your goodness, doubt your promises, but to ask questions, to find out what those promises really were. And from that passion, I pray you would use them all the more in the future. But if not, Lord, and if this is ultimately going to end up going the way of the world, I pray for comfort in the process, not only for him, but for all those around him. And as you see us all through our own heartache in life, that you would be glorified through all of it. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 Thanks, Sean. Thanks for the opportunity to, to pray. We're certainly open uh, to that on our broadcast. Uh, well, a question from Yari on First Kings thirteen eighteen, which I can read here. I'm hoping this is the right verse and this question makes sense to you guys but uh, the old prophet answered I too am a prophet as you are and an angel said to me by the word of the Lord bring him back with you to his house so that he yeah. may eat bread and drink water but he was lying to him that's first Kings thirteen eighteen. question being um, what does that mean and a follow-up question do blessings blessings happen this way as well well, it wasn't a blessing. The guy got mauled by a lion as a result of his direct disobedience. Mm-hmm. The crux of the issue, to give you a short answer, Yari, was in that situation, he had a direct word from God that he was to go to this place and do this thing. A false prophet, true or legitimate or not, he gave a false prophecy. He said God said something he didn't say. So there. Told him, no, God told me something other than what you heard first from him directly. And because of his not only willingness to be deceived, but being held responsible for the knowledge that he had, he was judged accordingly. So when we ask the question, how does this apply to blessings in our lives? Well, I don't know where it would apply to blessings. There was no blessing here. But there is an opportunity for us daily, like with Rich's brother, for instance, where we can take what God said about himself or what people said God said about himself. And just like with the problem of evil, just like with the blaming God on the Holocaust and all these other things, you can stick to what God said or you can allow people to paint a picture of God that is inaccurate. One is a lie and the other is not a lie or what we used to call back in the 90s truth. So when we're talking about the instance of the deceived prophet and the false prophet. Obviously, there's three lessons. One, don't be a false prophet. Two, don't be a deceived prophet. And the third is how, is stick to what you heard first from God. I think that's pretty much all we need to take away from that passage. Yeah. Yeah. Anything to add? No. No. Great. Thanks, Yari. Good to see you, so to speak. And thanks for that question. Um, A question from Monica. Have a question, please. 
you come to the right place. Uh, can you please give scriptures that refutes the idea that the seven-year tribulation is a full seven years and not three and a half years? I guess there's a school of thought that it's three and a half years and seven years. But Yeah, people would say the great tribulation is the only tribulation proper. Why mm. count the full last week of Daniel when Matthew 24 specifically says, then after the abomination of desolation, there shall be great tribulation. Why do we all call it a time of God's wrath? Mm. Yeah, so is she asking for passages that argue that point or argue uh, against it. that point? Refute, refute the it. idea that yeah. it's only three and a half but years. I guess, yeah, the support, the, the full seven years. Yeah, I, I yeah. guess, you know, the simplest way I could put this one, and I'll turn it over to you, from my perspective is to say, to take it as anything but the full seven years, I would have to take it as allegorical. It's described in a full seven-year period in Daniel chapter 9. Uh, John describes it as a full seven-year period of God's wrath. And the beginning of the tribulation period is the Antichrist. Right? So the Antichrist is one of the first seals that God opens, as well as uh, death, warfare, and plague. Right. So all these things are instituted in the beginning of the tribulation period. There is a ramping up of the tribulation period that happens at the three-and-a-half-year mark, in which the Antichrist uh, will uh, essentially declare himself to be God, uh, he'll set himself up in the temple as God and begin to actively go out on a genocidal rampage against the Jews and the Christians. Uh, that that will definitely ramp up the tension, but it was already a tribulation period prior to that moment. And again, if you read Revelation chapter 6, where it talks about the first four seals being opened, it doesn't really seem like a picnic. I mean, it seems pretty awful. I believe a quarter of the population is wiped out. Uh, right off the bat, not to mention everyone that's killed during the warfare and the desperate economic situation that people find themselves in. So I, I, I don't fully, I guess I would more have to hear an argument from the other side as to why we should discount that as not a tribulation period, uh, considering the fact that it's pretty uh, pretty different, pretty uh, far more extreme than things that we see happening on a regular basis. It, it just seems very obvious to me that this is all part of a rev of uh, the tribulation period and, and again it is counted in that way I, i'm not really sure of a time in which someone describes the first three and a half years as not the tribulation and then the latter three and a half years as the tribulation so i would have to see a passage that made that kind of delineation and i'm not aware of one so mm -hmm. uh, i think sean gave kind of the best uh the best representation of someone making that argument mm -hmm. pointing out matthew 24 and saying that Jesus says that uh, the great tribulation tribulation will follow the abomination that causes desolation, which will happen at the three-and-a-half-year mark. I think that's the best possible scriptural reasoning that you can give, uh, to my knowledge, but it doesn't really, like I said, it doesn't undo all these other passages that I just listed off. Um, right. you, have, you have anything else? Well, yeah, when it comes to... Show me a passage that says your conclusion. Obviously, that's not how thinking is done, let alone reading. <laughs> when we are talking about the doctrine of what the tribulation is, obviously the best place to start with someone who disagrees with you is to first find out what are the common pieces in this Lego box, so to speak. If I can start there, then I'm already on a good track. And if we can start with the resurrection, great. Authority of Scripture, even better. Nature of the Trinity, nature of salvation, we're already best friends. But if then they say, what gives you the impression from Scripture that the tribulation is only appropriately and exclusively applied to Matthew 24 and 21 following the 
abomination that causes desolation. And the best way to handle that is a lot like people who would deny the rapture because the word doesn't appear in our English translations, or people who would deny the millennium because it only appears very sparsely and more, most directly in Revelation 20, a passage they would read in advance as allegorical as you stated. The key is not to compare a person who would dismiss the seven years as an atheist, but like with the atheist, be aware of assumptions beforehand. There's more, but there's generally four views on the end times, none of which are deal breakers when it comes to someone's salvation. There's idealists, there are dispensationalists, there are preterists, and there are, as it's oftentimes called, panists. People just say it'll all pan out. Now, again, there are more, but just for the sake of the broadcast time, I'll be brief. Uh, idealist would say that this is all allegory. These are all symbols. They're not speaking of an actual literal event. It's just meant to be understood as the spiritual conflict that's beyond us, and any application you take from it, and eh, do it with a grain of salt. It's just as valid as anyone else's opinion. I wouldn't discount someone's salvation if they handled Scripture that way, but I certainly wouldn't want to sit under their teaching because they're dismissing, essentially, the whole book. That would be my problem. Why do you take these parts as allegorical and these parts as literal, despite genre across the Old and New Testaments, very literal fulfillments in Old Testament prophecies, but when the New Testament prophet speaks with the same structure, in the same language, and verbatim quoting these passages, why would it be handled inconsistently? That would be our objection. The preterist is someone who looks at the past and says these prophecies were fulfilled that they have been t uh, taken care of in the past and that the millennium is just, you know, this picture of the church that now God's work in mankind and ushering in the kingdom of heaven isn't literal heaven coming down to earth, but the bride of Christ being introduced to this world and the abomination that causes desolation, the removal of the Jewish people from the scene is a picture of what happened in 70 AD and they would usually try to reference the language Josephus used to describe it as one of the primary eyewitnesses of the events. Now, again, my problem with that is why would you use a non-biblical source as an authority or an interpretation tool over Scripture mm -hmm. or instead putting that in Scripture? It's inconsistent to me. Uh, we're dispensationalists, uh, particularly a Zionist branch of dispensationalists. We think that God still has plans for the Jewish people, and that at this time, this dispensation, fancy word, just means this time of covenant, he's using the church, he's going to again use Israel in the future. And we would go to Daniel 9 through 12, we would go to Zechariah 13, we would go to plenty of passages that give us this idea, God's not through with the Jewish people, and if he didn't mean the Jewish people, then why on earth did he write it in paper? Because I can't make sense of this. The idea is when we are put in a situation where they say, well, I need to see the words, challenge that assumption, because we don't come to our understanding of salvation through that. You wouldn't find you're going to spend eternity with God in heaven in the Bible, but that is a fair conclusion to come to after you read in full context, Ephesians 2, 8 through 9, Romans uh, 10, 9 through 11, and so on and so forth, John 3, 16 through 17, on it goes. But if someone says, well, I need to see the tribulation is seven years, challenge that, say that's not how you come to a reasonable conclusion. If on the other hand, you get someone to ask a not 
emotional question, but a factual one, a consistent one, a one you can work with, where's the water in the clay? What still makes it malleable? They say, what reason gave, uh, what gave you reason to conclude the tribulation seven years? Three scriptures usually are kept in mind. The first is Daniel chapter 9, 24 through 27, in noting that the full week is the introduction of this cruel king of the north, the Assyrian, the Antichrist, take your pick. But it notes that him confirming that covenant for one week is in fact this time where Israel is being given over literally to a covenant with death. And that's referencing again the book of Zechariah. So that would be the first, is noting this whole time as a time of God's wrath and specifically involving Israel. Jeremiah refers to it as Jacob's trouble, and it's referred to by other names in the book of Joel as well. Uh, but then we take another step. I mentioned three verses. That's one. The second verse that would note the entirety of the tribulation as a time of God's wrath is 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, the whole thing, where it notes that the falling away happening first, then the man of sin being revealed. Now, we aren't told much about the falling away, but the whole chapter is dedicated to the significance of this man of sin with hefty references to the book of Daniel and Zechariah and noting this individual as a agent of Satan and noting in peacetime or in war, which let's be honest, the lines are going to be kind of blurry at that time period. He's not going to be a friendly fellow to those who don't think he's the best thing since uh, toasted bread. So we need to again ask the question, what makes the tribulation a time of God's wrath? It's noting the fact, and you can reference 1 Thessalonians 5 as like a sub-point as well, 2 Thessalonians 2 mentions him as an agent of Satan, and if we're going to note any time that kind of figure is in power, that's a mark of judgment. That's a sign that you're in difficult times. Difficult leaders are being put in power, and most Jews would, of course, affirm that handling. The last is actually, I mentioned one verse with one subverse. I mentioned two verses. <laughs> now I'm going to mention one verse with two subplots. We've got the one, two, three thing going on here. Throughout the entirety of the book of Revelation, and Peter, Dave, my father, and I would handle Revelation from chapter 6, technically 5, but 6 all the way through 18 as a chronological series of events structured the same way that Jewish literature always was. There are sections where it overviews the main events and then focuses in on how God's dealing with people through the gospel. Chapter 6, the seal judgments. Chapter 7, how's God speaking? Chapter 8 and 9, the trumpet judgments, 1 through 6. Pause these two witnesses. How's God teaching at this time? And also note, how did the 144,000 come to salvation in the first place? Mm -hmm. End of the uh, Revelation 11, the seventh seal judgment, or trumpet judgment rather, the seven seal judgments are about to be introduced. Time out. The abomination that causes desolation, the uh, you know great tribulation proper has begun. Satan's been cast down to earth, cut off from heaven. A lot of stuff is happening behind the scenes. Mm. The mark of the beast is introduced. All these things happen at that halfway point. Then what happens? Revelation 15, the bold judgments are prepared. Mm. And Revelation 6, Revelation 9, or 11, and in Revelation 15, all of those sections specifically regard the judgments, the seals, the trumpets, and the bulls mm. as manifestations of God's wrath. Mm. So if we're going to ask the question, where do you get the seven years of the tribulation? Based on my handling of scripture, I see the entire seven years as described as God's wrath. That's what mm. I define as tribulation.
But if you're going to get caught up in the category, I would note the second half is worse, but no less tribulous, if you will. That would be how I'd have a conversation among someone that I've already established common ground with. If words like apostate and heretic get thrown around, then, well, maybe some memes will be shared making fun of them, but I don't think we're going to have a productive conversation. It's best just to leave on the already negative term set. Is that fair? <laughs> yeah. Monica, thank you. Uh, great question. Hope that helps you out. With uh, Good job, Sean, with the scriptures and all that stuff. Thank you. A question from Mariah. Um, if Satan is bad, being a liar, this is true, why did um, he tempt Jesus? Did he mean what he said when tempting Jesus and offering him the kingdoms of the world? So I think the question is, what did Satan, what was he trying to achieve in tempting Jesus? Did he have the power to even do that? Was he was lying? He yeah. 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 Um, so I, I guess, uh, like you said, there's a couple layers to the question. I think the main thrust of the question is, was Satan's offer above board? And if he's evil, why mm. would he offer a good thing to Jesus? Mm. Uh, this is always Satan's You should host. MO. That was a much better way to pose the question. <laughs> <laughs> um, Can't so, wait to touch all these buttons. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah, pizza and technology, that's not... Yeah, no, that probably wouldn't be what's, good. What's that? What's yeah. that? <laughs> you struggle with the bike gear, right? Yeah. <laughs> so uh, Satan's MO is always to gussy up or to... Uh, put into terms that sound appealing, temptations that bring about ruin. Uh, this mm. is why one of the primary analogies that is used or metaphors that is used of Satan is that of a hunter. Uh, this is in Proverbs chapter 7 is, is a good one that he's, he's hunting us, and good hunters use bait. Right? Mm. They use something that has an allure, something that looks very good, mm. but actually it's a trap. It's something that ends up undermining what was promised. This is what we see happen in Genesis chapter 3. Right when Satan promises Adam and Eve to be like God, he's offering them something that seems good, but he uh, diminishes or doesn't. He's not fully honest about what the consequences of that decision would be, yeah. and that that's exactly what Satan always does. Mm. Now, there's debate uh, among Christian circles about whether or not Satan is quote unquote a true believer or is he is, he is just mm. manipulative. So there are some people who actually believe that Satan. When he's making these offers and he's saying these things, he's so arrogant and he's so self-deluded that he actually believes them, mm. right? So when Satan is offering Adam and Eve fruit in the garden, there's an idea that even though he's doing it for selfish reasons, that he's possibly so self-deluded that he actually thinks it would have been better for mankind to be under out from underneath the throne of God than to actually mm. be underneath it, that he actually does believe the, the old saying, it's better to rule in hell than to serve in heaven. Mm. That's that's possible. I think there are certain passages that seem to allude to that, but it's equally possible that he's just a liar, right? That he, mm. that he that he just doesn't like God. He was thrown out of heaven, and he's bittered by that, and he's taken out his aggression upon mankind by deceiving us and manipulating us. So that's, mm. that's very plausible. But when Satan is tempting Jesus, that's pure malice. No matter how you're viewing him as an as a entity, that's pure malice because he knows why Jesus is on earth, he knows the purpose of Jesus's mission. Um, he may not know the full totality of it, but he definitely has a, a pretty good idea of what Jesus is there to do. Mm. And so his temptation in the in uh, the wilderness is always to question or go against the word of God. In order for Jesus to be the perfect sacrifice, Jesus has to be the perfect follower, right? If Jesus were not to be perfect in his obedience to his father, 
then he would not be the perfect sacrifice for our sins, Mm -hmm. which is what he had come to do. That's what he had come to accomplish. So Jesus did not come to rule and reign. If he wanted the kingdoms of the earth for himself, he could take them at any time. He doesn't need Satan to give those to him. He is wanting instead to redeem mankind, and that's a different uh, perspective. So when Satan offers Jesus the kingdoms of the earth, that's uh, a valid offer. It's something that Satan could have offered to the Son of Man. Uh, Now, if Jesus would have taken ownership of that and said, okay, I'm going to be a despotic ruler over all the nations of the earth, number one, he's still a man, so he's going to die. And number two, he's going to be ruling over an irredeemable world now, Mm. uh, which means that the Father would have had to wipe it out because there's no reason to preserve the lives of man if there's no capability for us to be redeemed. The only reason why God would keep us around is if there is a possibility that we can be redeemed from our sin Mm. and go into eternity with him. Otherwise, Mm. he's just cruel. Mm. Subjecting us to a a life that is filled with pain and suffering and eventually ends in death Mm. is only worth it if there is a possibility of a better life afterwards. If there isn't, then this is just a torturous existence, no matter how you look at it, right? So the the redeeming quality of life is that there is an afterlife. That's the only thing that gives us hope in the midst of suffering. So I believe it was an above board offer. I believe that if Jesus would have bowed down to Satan, he would have received the kingdoms of the world, but it would have been under the the terms that Satan had provided. And I think that they would have immediately been taken away from him uh, because God would have wiped out the world if yeah. Jesus would have done that. So uh, that's that's what we see happening there. So yeah, yeah Satan is evil. That, that was a malicious temptation. And that's the intent I believe he had. And Jesus made the right choice. He well, tends to. Because <laughs> he tends to, you know. Yeah. Well, and it's key. What was Jesus' answer? Scripture. Yeah, he yeah. answered quoting the book of Deuteronomy of all places. Yeah. But that's what's interesting about the exchange as well. Um, just kind of an aside, but worth talking about. That whole 40 days and nights in the wilderness wasn't just, you know, God turning on hard mode because he needed to get the controls right or something. It was because when Jesus was in that wilderness, he was modeling the perfect Israelite. If you've read the book of Numbers, actually, if you've read the Old Testament, you'd note that whenever Israel was faced with any one of three temptations, the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, the pride of life, mm. First John chapter 2 and noting the things we all fall for every single day, Jesus was subjected to those things and didn't fall, showing that yeah. he is a step above what everyone else in history has ever claimed to be, ever tried to be. There's none righteous, no, not one, the psalmist says. So if we're asking the question, what gives Jesus the right to offer his life while Mm. I try to pay for my sins my own way, the only perfect life, the only perfect worthy life before God and man was Jesus of Nazareth, not just Mm. by his standards, but by everyone else's. When it came to in his way, because no, not all of us have been tempted to, when we see a rock say, you know, I could turn you into bread, but I choose not to. But we've all been in a place where if we had the power to meet our physical needs at the expense of spiritual, I do that more. Yeah. We're not all given the opportunity to throw ourselves off of a building to wow a crowd, but we are oftentimes tempted to use our spiritual gifts, our talents, to appeal to our sense of accomplishment, our yeah. ideals, rather than God's. And of course, while we are, aren't tempted to receive the glory of the kings of the world, Jesus was being offered God's way or our way, mm. which I think ties well into Shoe Speak's question where a friend of his is like, I don't want to follow God. He makes life harder. Yeah. Well, 
to use the modern video game vernacular, you set the game on hard mode, you get better rewards afterwards. Mm. But then again, the idea of seeking an easier life is an understandable one too. I think the best way to go about this confusion is for people to remember if we want to do life right, we can either come up with our own standard mm -hmm. or we can follow up with the one who invented it. What, who would have the better idea of the ideal, which is as much ease and as little difficulty as possible, or as we saw with Jesus and as we saw with countless people before him in Hebrews 11, having their children taken away, being stoned, being crucified, being hung, being subjected to homelessness and exposure, all these things, but for what purpose? What Peter said, is there hope for a better life than a life that is by definition as close to hell as we can get, or at least should want to get? Mm. Yeah, and, and you know, questions like that are very interesting because we have to remember that Jesus is described as the happiest person who ever lived, right? So mm. in Psalm 45, it says that he was anointed with the oil of gladness more than his fellow companions, mm. and that's echoed in the book of Hebrews as well. So uh, the idea that Jesus was some sour and dour, religi overly religious zealot who just never cracked a smile and was just uh, lecturing people all the time and saying how much he hated humanity— uh, that might be depictions that are elaborated on in more conservative church circles, but that's not accurate to what we see in the Bible. Jesus was legitimately the most happy person who ever existed. And when people ask for a life of ease, comfort, or, or happiness, I think they're, they're missing the point. We don't want a life necessarily of ease and happiness. We want a life that's fulfilling. And that's at bottom what human beings want. That's what provides us with joy and meaning and balance. And these things don't come through ease and comfort. They tend to actually come through difficulty and sacrifice. So, for instance, when you're raising kids, you have to teach them that the short-term methodology of just feeling good and mm -hmm. having a life of ease is actually going to produce a much worse life for them. Mm -hmm. And it's going to take away greater pleasures that you want them to have as a good, as mm -hmm. a good parent. So, obviously, if, if my daughter wants to overindulge in sweets, and she just wants an easy life, a life of pleasure, I could do that as a dad. Like, mm. that's something I can give to her. When I'm telling her no, I'm not doing it out of cruelty or a way to remove from her pleasure. It's because I want her to learn, first of all, discipline, because that's going to be the key to get her pretty much everything that is good in life, a uh, long-term relationship filled with love, the possibility for a successful career, and the ability to follow God with a clear conscience. All these things come from self-control and discipline. So to remove that from her and just give her the easy way out every single time would be doing her a great disservice. Mm. So uh, when we say we want a life of ease and comfort, we might be missing the point, uh, and we might be giving in to a temptation that's very likely to destroy us. And so it does fit into Satan's temptation to Jesus, right? So all of Satan's temptations to Jesus have the, the tinge of what we call immediate pleasure for long-term pain. Right, So Jesus is hungry, so Satan says, hey, you, immediately you could fit, fill that need by disobeying your father because God had, had told him to go into the wilderness and, and not eat to fast. Mm. So he could deny the word of the father by feeding his belly. And he quotes Deuteronomy, man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Uh, Jesus could have, like I said, had short-term vanity and praise by jumping off the temple. But again, he had to deny the will of the father to do so. And then finally, he can have the kingdoms of the world in order to forego the redemption of man. So 
all of this ease and immediate pleasure would have been good for the mm. moment, but it would have faded away. So as, as Christians, we have to learn, as Paul says, when we're children, we think like children and act like children. But yeah. when we grow up, we put away ch- childish things. As Christians, we have to learn how to do that. How do I sacrifice the immediate pleasures of the moment for the long-term pleasures of true satisfaction and fulfillment yeah. that are offered in God? Yeah, very good. And uh, God... Very, very fast-fading time, but mm-hmm. there's one more question I wanted to get to before we sign off. Uh, this was sent along with our student ministry. A few people on the internet have asked this. Uh, there's a YouTuber going around doing philanthropy, charitable givings and stuff, live streaming it by the name of Mr. Beast. And people mm-hmm. are saying, is he the Antichrist? Because, you know, his username, The Beast. and It must be. You're already laughing. Um, right, it's not The Beast. It's Mr. Beast. Yeah, <laughs> I don't uh, think the Antichrist would To you, it's Mr. Beast. Beast. Yeah. Be careful when you fall into, like we talked about before, this trap of coming to too many conclusions with too little information. The Antichrist is going to fit the whole bill. Is it true that one of the many monikers of the Antichrist will be the Beast? Yes, but specifically the Beast out of the sea. There's also the Beast out of the earth. And there's also just the username beast. Will the Antichrist gain the attention of a lot of people through good works? Yes, in a way. Second Thessalonians 2 notes that signs and lying wonders. But note, there's a lot more that has to be fulfilled for that to be the Antichrist. When it comes to him, hey, pray for him. God's using him. His heart's on display. Could definitely uh, be more Christ-like if he did it anonymously, but I'm not going to tell a guy what to do with his money. I'm just glad he's doing it to help people and be a blessing. Yeah, yeah, great. Well, thanks for taking us home there, Sean. We're out of time for today. Thank you for joining us and for your great questions. There was a theme running through today, which is very cool. We're back again tomorrow, same time, same places. Have a great evening. See you then. You've been listening to A Reason for Hope. Thank you again for joining us as we continue our journey through God's Word, one question of the heart at a time. Until we meet again, we would love to connect with you. You can text or email your questions to questionsforhope at gmail.com. You can also find out more about our ministry at calvarychristianfellowship.com. And be sure to join us next time on A Reason for Hope. A Reason for Hope is an outreach ministry of Calvary Christian Fellowship in Tucson, Arizona.